the stage brother's common knowledge. Everyone knows it. You know it. I know it. President Trump knows it. Why is this chair so high? There we go. That's a bit too low now, actually. There we go. Perfect. And the middle setting on the chair was just right. But anyway, welcome back to Party Roulette. My name is Felix. I'll be your captain on this perilous journey through the world of politics. Uh, yeah, it's been a pretty interesting week in politics. I think I recorded my last episode last Friday. Uh, it's now Friday again, which means it's time to get freaky at the Uber Radio Party of Wonder Bunker tonight. Be there or be square. By the time you're listening to this, it's probably already happened. And uh, we've made all the headlines for throwing the best party since Woodstock. That'd be nice. But yeah, uh, I think I'm going to start doing this more regularly because I quite enjoy it. It's quite therapeutic to just sit in a room and talk to yourself. There's not even a sound engineer here. It's just me in the room talking. Normally I do this with Team One, but Team One has uh, adapted to a nocturnal schedule whereby he falls asleep at approximately 7 a.m., arises sometime between 3 and 4 p.m., Gets out of bed at 5 p.m., breakfast 6 p.m., 30-minute Tinder sesh, and then uh, and then goes to town, does his thing. But that's not a very conducive schedule for uh, recording podcasts. So getting sixes is currently on hiatus until Timor gets back into the 9-to-5 schedule, which means that I'm going to be explaining politics. And uh, the last week was pretty interesting. I think on Thursday night, there was the fifth presidential debate um, which was, it was really interesting. It wasn't as strong a performance from Bernie as he's had in the past. People are often saying he needs to be more aggressive. He needs to point out the differences between himself and other candidates because often you have, like, it's such a stacked field and everybody's saying similar things and everybody's promising things. And there was one moment I loved so much, which was from his first debate, and everybody got a closing remark. And I think he was like the last or second last to go or something. And he was like, you know, everyone up here, they're good people. I like them. Everyone's promising great things, great change, great things, great policies. But you have to ask yourself, why does nothing ever change? Why is it every four years, everyone's up here promising this, promising that, and nothing changes. If you elect me, I will change things because I've been saying these things for the last 40 years and stuff like that, like differentiating himself from the rest of the candidates is so important at this stage because there's a lot of people who are only starting to tune in now and they've had all this default support for Joe Biden and they're going to tune in at some point and see Joe Biden fumble like a really easy sentence and just forget what he's talking about in the middle of an answer and it's gonna be great. And they're gonna be like, wait, this man can't be president. He can't fucking finish a sentence. <laughs> How's he gonna be the most powerful man in the world? And then at that stage, there's gonna be less like 20% of the electorate, you know, is gonna have that thought at some stage. And then their support is gonna go somewhere else. And a lot of those people, because, you know, they're just kind of casual, uh, casually invested in this, they might get tempted by people like Pete Buttigieg, who's offering a very clean, pristine image of himself and sort of an Obama-esque persona 
which is easy for older people to get behind because, you know, he's not criticizing too many things. He's just, he, he says nothing when he answers a question. There was one thing he said during the debate where they asked him, like, are you going to raise or lower military spending? And he went on this whole, like, rambling tirade, like, you know, it's no question that the military spending in America is, is, uh, is you know, is... Is, is not what it should be, and there's uh, many changes that I would make, and Donald Trump has been doing this, and he has these medieval tactics like uh, building a moat and building a wall, 17th century, I propose a 21st century approach. It's like he speaks for a minute and he says nothing. That's a very simple question. Are you going to raise military spending? You say yes, you say no. Easy. You should say no because Trump's raised it by like 20% when it was already the highest military budget in the world and higher than the next 10 nations combined. So, but yeah, he, he really, Bernie Sanders has to start explaining to people why he's miles better than everyone else and why people like Pete Buttigieg is gonna change nothing. People like Elizabeth Warren, they're still a part of the establishment and he's the, he's the only guy. Um, and I do wish he'd start explaining that more. There was a great moment though between uh, Tulsi Gabbard and Pete Buttigieg. That's one great thing about Tulsi is she's always just like going for people, man. She's not afraid to like attack people. And I feel like she comes into these debates with a target and a focal point. But yeah, I'll play you the a quick clip from it now. It's like two minutes long. Um, and it's a really interesting exchange because if you watch it without any outside context, it kind of seems like, you know, this could be an equal exchange. You know, he has a good good hit. She has a couple good hits. But then you watch it again, and there's a final bit at the end, and I'll put a link to the YouTube in the description, and you see the look on his face, man. He just plummets. He's just fucking... He's like a scared little man who's just been caught stealing something in a shop because he doesn't have any money. And he's got no principles or ideas or values. And he's just a selfish little despicable human being. But yeah, I'll, I'll play the clip for you now and then, and then we can talk about it. I think the most recent example of your inexperience in national security and foreign policy came from your recent careless statement about how you as president be willing to send our troops to Mexico to fight the cartels. I know that it's par for the course in Washington to take remarks out of context, but that is outlandish even by the standards of today's politics. Are, are you saying that you didn't say that? I was talking about U.S.-Mexico cooperation. We've been doing security cooperation with Mexico for years with law enforcement cooperation and a military relationship that could continue to be developed with training relationships, for example. Do you seriously think anybody on this stage is proposing invading Mexico? That, that's not I'm what talking I said. About that's not what I said. Up, I'm that's talking about building up alliances. <laughs> and if your question is about experience, let's also talk about judgment. One of the foreign leaders you mentioned meeting was Bashar al-Assad. I have, in my experience, such as it is, whether you think it counts or not, since it wasn't accumulated in Washington, enough judgment that I would not have sat down with a murderous dictator like that. You were asked directly whether you would send our troops to Mexico to fight cartels, and your answer was yes. The fact checkers can check this out. No. But your point about judgment is absolutely correct. Our commander-in-chief does need to have good judgment. 
And what you've just pointed out is that you would lack the courage to meet with both adversaries and friends to ensure the peace and national security of our nation. I take the example of those leaders who have come before us, leaders like JFK, who met with Khrushchev, like Roosevelt, who met with Stalin, like, Donald like Trump Reagan, who met... So yeah, in that exchange, you saw Tulsi Gabbard bring up the fact that Mayor Pete had been flirting with the idea of sending US troops into Mexico. And you might hear that and think like, oh, you know, that's okay, like what, what Pete said afterwards. Uh, we've been doing military cooperation with them. No, we haven't. We've been sending we've been sending the DEA to Mexico and Colombia and other Latin American countries for the last 30 years. Obviously, if you watch Narcos, you know all about that. You know how great that works out. And this is just part of the war on drugs. And the idea that Mayor Pete would send in US troops to help with the fight against the cartels when the only reason the cartels exist is because of American drug policy is ludicrous. That's how you fix it. You end the war on drugs. You don't escalate the war on drugs. They've been doing that since Reagan and it's changed absolutely nothing. They've had the same strategy since the 80s and the war on drugs has gotten worse, not better. So why on earth would you ever think that sending more troops there would be a good move? And he doesn't really think that. He's saying that because he thinks he can get elected by saying that. He's saying that because he thinks that's what people wanna hear. He's trying to appeal to older voters who are like, oh, you know, we should just send more troops in, just keep the drugs away. Because he knows if he's honest, he's not a stupid guy. If he's honest with himself. What the fuck was that? Some kind of explosion outside the corridor. Anyway, we got soundproofing, so it should be all right. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just, it's really sad. And then at the end, you hear Tulsi be like, or Pete Buttigieg is like, oh, you know, you, you would meet with Bashar al-Assad, which is just a totally unrelated point, and Syria baiting and being like, he's a known war criminal and a dictator, and, 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 and it's like, the amount of dictators and war criminals that the US interacts with, is allied with, is, there's many, you know? So saying that Tulsi would sit down with Assad to discuss peace terms and to have diplomacy, and saying that would be a bad thing. And then afterwards, when Tulsi's like, you've just shown to everybody here that you are too cowardly to do that, that you do not have it in you to actually sit down, be diplomatic. Your first response is to go to war. And she really calls him out on that. And that's one thing that Tulsi's very good on is foreign policy, and she really wants to end these regime change wars and she gets so much stick from the establishment media who are all like, regime change wars? Mm, that's, a, that's a Russian phrase, isn't it? It's like, nah, man, I'm pretty sure that's an English phrase. If it was Russian, it'd be like, it'd sound very different. Um, and even if it was a Russian phrase, that's what it is. That's what the US has been doing for the last 60 years is trying to have regimes in small countries in place which they are friendly with, which will give them economic benefits or political allegiance. And that has resulted in so much suffering around the world. And for all the good that America have done, you know, in the 30s and 40s and how they defeated the Nazis pretty much and stood up to, to Stalin and communist regimes in Russia, or specifically the communist regime of Russia, they've undone all of that 
good and positivity with all of the interference they've done in small countries. And it's a shame now that their reputation is is one that's so negative and, and they deserve that and they need to rectify that. And a man like Bernie will. Also, Tulsi as well is pretty good. Uh, yeah, there were some other good moments from that debate. It was Again, it was just like Biden had no idea what he was doing. There was one moment where um, there's this guy, Tom Steyer, who's running for president. And he's basically just brought his way onto the debate stage. That's another theme of this election, is there's loads of billionaires there. There's Andrew Yang, who, in fairness, does actually stand for something. He stands for a universal basic income, like they're trying to implement in Finland right now. Um, which is basically, he's calling it a freedom dividend, whereby he would give $1,000 to every adult American citizen. I don't personally agree with that. I think it's it's something which is a very far left-wing policy, and it's something which can happen gradually. Like in Finland right now, they've had great left-wing policies in place for the majority of the last 70 years, and now they can experiment with something like that. America is so far right wing. If you try and like jump that far to the left, it's just going to cause a whole mess of stuff. It's the same as in England right now. We have a country which is leaning towards the right, which has been pushed towards the right over the course of the last nine years. And now Jeremy Corbyn's here proposing extremely bold socialist left wing ideas, which even I look at and I think you might... You know, I don't know if I agree with that. That's how left-wing they are. They'd be left-wing even if he was trying to implement them here or in Germany or in Sweden or Denmark or the most left-wing countries in the world. So to try and implement that in our current political context in Britain, it's just never going to happen. And people are going to look at it and be like, nah, man. But yeah, with Andrew Yang, I think it's it's also just that the system and the economy is not adapted to have that policy. Everything would just react to that and people would exploit it. The one thing everybody says is like, rent would just go up $1,000 a month. And there's a decent chance stuff like that would happen among a whole host of other things that could happen. And it's, it's like you make that your number one priority and you're missing out on all the other systemic things which cause poverty. You're just trying to give like a quick fix to it. Anyway, at least he stands for something and he is fighting for that and he's he's a good presence to have on the debate stages because there aren't many people up there who actually care about people. Um, but another one of these billionaires is is uh, Thomas Steyer. Steyer? Steyer? I don't know. Um, and he's interesting because he's just bought his way on. He paid for like 4 million, 5 million in political ads in Iowa and in New Hampshire, which are the first two caucuses. And if you have like decent polling numbers in those states, then you can get on debate stage. And he was up there the other day and he was criticizing Joe Biden for not being hard enough on uh, climate change and not having bold enough policies under Obama and that he wasn't gonna do anything. And then Biden was there and Biden was like half asleep, man. Biden had no idea. Like the moderator was like, Biden, you have a, he mentioned your name there. Biden's like, huh? Huh? Oh yeah. Anyway. Uh, yeah. And then Biden went on this little, like little speech, which was really nice and punchy and quick out of nowhere. And he was just like, Tom, you know, you're saying all this stuff. Uh, 
obviously climate change is a very important issue. That's the major threat facing our world. But I don't quite understand how you can say this when over the course of your career as a businessman, you've pumped millions and millions of dollars into the coal industry here in America, more than the entire coal industry of Great Britain, is how much money you put into it individually. <laughs> and then Tom Steyer was just there like, yeah, um, uh, yeah, you got me there, man. <laughs> so that was a beautiful moment. And now you've also got uh, Bloomberg who's jumped in the race. Um, who's obviously the head of the company, Bloomberg. And again, it's like all these billionaires are just jumping in now because they see how weak Biden is and how he's just not going to do it in the end. And he's people are going to realize that he's senile. And then they think, oh, you know, if Biden's not going to make it, then I have to do it. Then I have to jump in and save the day. And it's like, no, no, nobody wants you, man. You don't care about anything. You don't want to change anything. You're the people that we're actually trying to fight. You're the 1%. You're the people who've been screwing up this country for the last 50 years. We don't want you, you know? And there's no reason to think that like, just because you have loads of money that you'd be good at the job. When you jump in the race and then you start polling at 1%, and that's just because of your name recognition, it's just, there's no place for it today. And people, it really shows the disparity and the lack of understanding amongst the establishment and how they just don't get that there's a new movement, that the base has shifted. They still think like, oh, no, 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 people will be sensible. People need to just trust us and this, they're, they're so thick. It's amazing. They have no idea what they're doing. Another man who's just jumped in the race is uh, Deval Patrick, who's a former senator from Massachusetts. And he's a black man. And uh, I think establishment Democrats tend to think that you know, we'll just go with the old Obama strategy again, you know? Another another one of those, and that'll work. And uh, yeah, and it's not it's not happening, you know? This guy, he was working for um, Mitt Romney's venture capitalist fund, which just was robbing people left, right, center. And he announced his presidential run last week. And the only piece of news that I saw on it was that he had hosted this event at Morehouse College, which is traditionally uh, a black college. And when he got there, so CNN were there as well. This was a story from CNN. He got there and he canceled the event immediately because he learned that only two people turned up. And this was like one of his first campaign events where he's, he's all gassed to get going and be like, woo! Deval Patrick, he doesn't have any followers, man. He doesn't have support. Nobody cares. He just has a lot of money. He's just a part of the establishment. It's real sad to see things like this happening. But also quite funny as well. So yeah, also this week, uh, in very, very, very good news, Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, easy top seven most evil men in the world, has been indicted 
on corruption charges relating to bribery, fraud, and breach of trust. And there are numerous charges being pulled against him now. And this investigation has been going for like three years. Uh, the attorney general, who's clearly a man of principle, has been looking into this for a while. And now they've finally indicted him. Stuff relating to uh, taking big gifts from uh, foreign uh, businessmen, stuff like this, you know, dodgy deals, a lot of stuff relating to journalism, where he, in exchange for limiting the circulation of other newspapers, got favor favorable press from certain other newspapers. So basically saying like, yo, if you write nice stuff about me, I'll, you know, clamp down on your competitors. Again, just like trying to control the media, very, very messed up stuff, but stuff which is often par for the course in countries where you have a right-wing person in charge and they've been in charge for a long time and they have a large grip on the country. But what's interesting about Israel is it's been in deadlock, political deadlock for the last six months or so, and they haven't been able to form a government because nobody has a majority. And the leader of the opposition, Benny, Benny Gantz, told him to step down. He was like, this is ridiculous. We need a man who's going to be able to to lead the country forward. All you're doing is, you know, fighting against corruption charges. Step down, bro. This is your time. But because of the deadlock, he's still prime minister until somebody forms a government and there's a new but and there's a new one or he can continue. But his response to it was was typically horrendous and he got up there and he was like, "What we are witnessing today my Israeli accent, isn't it? What what we are witnessing today is uh <laughs> I'm trying to imitate my friend Noam when he does it. He's Israeli, he's very good at it. What we are doing today? <laughs> what what is happening today? I'm I'm just gonna do a normal accent. He said, What we, what's happening today is a governmental coup. This is a contaminated, toxic investigation. We need to investigate the investigators. This is a coup. They're trying to get rid of me. This is all lies. A very Trumpian response in just saying, like, this is a hoax. This is nonsense. Fake news. Fake news. Conspiracy. They're trying to get me, man. And because they're trying to get me, they're also trying to get you because you like me, right? Woohoo! And it's good because, well, it's good for him because this is how you, you fight back the narrative. This is the only way you can really convince people is just by outright saying, this is a lie. This is a conspiracy. They're trying to get me and they are the ones who are lying. They are the ones who are corrupt. Well, that's almost certainly not the case, but that's, that's the only argument you really have against it. So it's just a case of whether or not that's going to work and whether or not people will believe him when he's saying these uh, counter arguments. But yeah, I do hope that... Uh, Netanyahu goes down for the rest of his life. Almost certainly not going to happen. And uh, it's just, it's funny as well to see that, you know, this is what they go for. It's its the corruption. It's the meddling in the media. It's not the, the thousands of Palestinians who've been massacred by the IDF. It's not the Operation Protective Edge in 2014, which killed 500 children and 80% civilians. Nah, none of that. None of the war crimes. It's the it's the corruption. But yeah, either way, you still have to pull him up on corruption. And if that is what gets him out of Israeli politics, I'll be very happy. Another good thing, 
in global politics. I feel like every, all the countries in the world are in a way, or a lot of them, are steadily getting their shit together, except for Britain. We're just, we're about to jump off the cliff, man. Jeremy Corbyn, passenger seat, Boris Johnson, driver's seat. Woohoo! See you later, boys. <laughs> oh, we're so fucked. But yeah, this was uh, this was Hong Kong. So Hong Kong had its council elections at the weekend, and pro Hong Kong democracy independentist in brackets candidates swept the elections. They ousted so many pro Beijing candidates and incumbents, and I think this was the first time in years that you had a majority in these seats for non-Beijing supported candidates, which is a really massive win for the protesters and for democracy movement, because you got huge turnout as well. And there were loads of people who were interviewed who were like, yeah, I've never voted before, but I felt compelled in this election, even though it's just a council election, to vote for the pro-protester candidates because I stand in solidarity with them and they need my support. And Carrie Lam, I think her name's Carrie Lam, Carrie Jam, something like that. The uh, current leader of Hong Kong, who's supported by, yeah, Carrie Lam, who's supported by Beijing. Basically just a Chinese puppet, absolute shill. Again, another politician that needs to fuck off. She came out and she was like, this is very regrettable. She's also, she's throughout all of these protests over the last six months which have intensified and are not letting up and we've seen universities getting barricaded and shut down and my friend Timon told me about a girl that he knew from his high school and she's come home now from exchange because her university just isn't really functioning anymore but yeah there's been all this stuff going on and Carrie Lam and the rest of the Chinese puppeteers have been sending more and more police in, getting more and more aggressive, being violent towards the protesters, just massive human rights abuses. And she's always spoken about a silent majority that support her and how actually the people of Hong Kong are on her side and they want a restoration to order and for all these protesters to just go home and everything, just go back to normal. And these elections showed very clearly that that silent majority does not exist. And she's gonna have to respond to this somehow. But I like the way this is going. And there was also um, a statement that came out. I think it was passed unanimously in the Senate. And then one person in, in Congress voted against it. But it was basically just a statement of support from the US government and then Trump signed it. So pretty much the entire US government was like, yep, we stand in solidarity with the Hong Kong protesters. So like a massive middle finger to China. And then I think they also signed another bill which was uh, pertaining to the sale of tear gas, uh, military equipment, um, riot gear, all of these things which are used to control protesters. They've stopped selling all of those to Hong Kong. I'm not sure if to China as a whole, but definitely Hong Kong. They're trying to target and stop US equipment from going there. And again, massive middle finger to China. And China's foreign secretary responded almost immediately like, this is very regrettable. We cannot be having this. There will be swift and harsh repercussions for this, disres for this disrespect from America. 
it's like, man, how sensitive are you? You know, the foreign government is saying, eh, you know what? You should kind of leave these protesters alone. You, should, you shouldn't be beating them and blinding them with tear gas and denying them democracy when they so clearly desperately want it. All the US government is doing like, yeah, maybe you should, maybe you should listen to these guys. And China's like, what? How dare you? How dare you, you know, have an opinion that is against our opinion? <sighs> it's like Xi Jinping when he, he banned Winnie the Pooh because he, he got a bit butthurt. The people online were comparing him to Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> I would really, there's no way this was ever recorded or anybody's going to see this. But imagine the cabinet meeting in Beijing where Xi Jinping told everybody about that. And they all decided that together. Xi Jinping was there like, all right, guys, this is another thing I have to talk about. Um, some of you might be familiar with uh, the children's storybook character, Winnie the Pooh. And they're, they're all like, yeah, 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 Winnie the Pooh, man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, some people on Reddit, um, they've been saying that I look like him. And everybody in the room's like, oh my God, no way. That's terrible. What are we gonna do? We can't have this. We can't have people saying you look like a beloved children's character who overall has a positive image and connotation. What are we gonna do? Xi Jinping's there like, I think we have to, to ban him across the entire country. No more images of him. Ban him from the online servers. No books are allowed. He's gone. He's finished. 1.5 billion people, man. All these Chinese kids, they're never going to get to read these wonderful stories kind of pertaining to mental health and being a good person and treating people right, told in this beautiful narrative structure with a third eye lens, one of the all-time great children's books. They're never going to get to enjoy that because this absolute asshole in charge of China got a bit offended that some guys online were like, ah, oh, you look like him, man. Isn't that funny? I've actually got a Winnie the Pooh pin back home in London and I have it right next to my uh, my note from uh, from China as well, my one, one Yuan note, which has Mao on it. Can you imagine that? Every single piece of cash in China has Mao on it. Arguably one of the worst people in history who was responsible for the deaths of 60 million people directly. They look at that now and they're like, yeah, man, what a guy. Can you imagine if Stalin was still on Russian currency? I would say even Hitler on German currency, but Hitler was way better for the Germans than Mao was for the Chinese. Hitler didn't needlessly kill 60 million Germans. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but yeah, Hong Kong is going in the right direction. Massive solidarity to them. There's a lot of events in uh, Holland at the moment organized by this organization called Netherlands for Hong Kong. And they try and stand in solidarity with them in whatever way they can. Obviously very difficult because other side of the world. They do some good stuff and it's important to stay informed with this and be aware of the struggle because 
as you well know, an assault on democracy anywhere in the world is an assault on democracy everywhere in the world. So uh, yeah, stay informed, stay woke, and keep on loving your freedom, bro, because you never know when you're going to lose it.